0: Hello, and welcome to Rock and Roll Politics, the weekly podcast with me, Steve Richards. Thank you for tuning in wherever you are around the world. And as ever in our time together, we've got a lot to cram in. Uh, In a moment, uh, I'll reflect on two or three themes briefly for new listeners. Uh, That's quite a radical departure. Normally, I reflect on one theme, put it into context and all the rest of it. Well, I'm going to try and do it speedily with three themes. Uh, And that's going to be uh, Rail, the announcement about Rail. Uh, Paul Dacre's reasonings for pulling out of the Ofcom post, which tells us so much about the political culture in Britain and um, related in some ways Andrew Marr's reasons as as stated in his statement for leaving the BBC. So reflections on that then uh, your questions an amazing insightful topical range of questions yeah so a lot you'll be running miles if you're running and listening or walking along a canal or the Australian sea uh, somewhere anyway. That's to come. First of all, the usual kind of notices. Our notices, it's like an assembly where there are notices. Uh, Rock and Roll Politics, the Christmas special, live at the great Rope Tackle, legendary Rope Tackle Art Centre in uh, Shoreham on December the 8th. All of you along the South Coast, yeah, do come along, and I'm told there aren't that many tickets left, so get them quick. And on December the 9th, Rock and Roll Politics, the annual Christmas special at uh, King's Place. Uh, It's both live in the hall, yeah, we're back live, and uh, it's being streamed as well, for those of you who live on the moon and can't get to London, North London, and King's Place. Uh, Oh, yeah, one other thing uh, is that last year at about this time, some of you might remember, I said that, you know, if you want to, then it was my book on the Prime Minister's, if you want to buy that book as a Christmas present, email me and I'll uh, uh, do a kind of little signed thing, label. Uh, and post it back to you Uh, and uh, then you have a kind of signed copy to give somebody with a message of your choice and it was so successful last year I mean I spent kept the post office going I spent a fortune on stamps I think I made a colossal loss anyway with this new book out the prime ministers we never had if any of you want to uh, get it as a Christmas present and aren't going to book festivals where we sign these books um, Why don't you still buy it as a present? People will love it, especially your friends, you know, who share your interests. You might love it. Um, You know, on Boxing Day, reading about Dennis Healy, Michael Portillo, Michael Hess. I said, to be honest, I'm quite tempted to order one myself. That would be my dream. Boxing Day, the Miliband brothers, Neil Kinnock. Why didn't they get that crown of becoming prime minister? The mystery is solved through those chapters. So if any of you want to um, get the book and have a message in it, I will write a message and you need to email me. So what I'm going to do, I sometimes forget to give the email address. But as you know, this is the address that you need to send. If you want labels for the book or if you want to raise questions, points, um, join the many who do. Uh, It's steverick14 at icloud.com. And what you need to do for the book is email me, tell me what you want me to write with your address, and I'll be back down to that post office spending a fortune on stamps. You'll get that. You can put it in the book. And Boxing Day sorted. Maybe Christmas Day. Actually, that's my dream Christmas Day, reading about why Dennis Healy didn't become Prime Minister or Rab Butler. Yeah, it's Christmas sorted. Anyway, that's all up to you, but... um, Uh, That seemed to work well last year. Now, rail. What was... um, Well, let me put it this way. Let me be counterintuitive first and say this. At least they are, this government, investing in rail. In the 1980s, it was almost sinful to suggest that what railways needed was investment. Uh, You know, there was a sort of mythology that a a kind of wand could be waved and the railways could be improved by, say, privatisation without more investment. You know, and meanwhile, while we were having this fantasy debate in Britain, a debate which extended well beyond railways, France, Spain, Italy, investing massively in railways to the huge social and economic improvement of the places that were being linked by modern infrastructure. Well, at least Johnson is a public spender. If he wasn't there, the money being invested and announced, or re-announced to be honest, a lot of it had already been announced, would have been much less. There is a lot of talk, as you know, of Sunak being a more plausible leader Uh, and prime minister than the wayward Johnson Um, but in these areas of investment he is an outdated Thatcherite and it was him who clearly put pressure on Johnson not to go as planned with high-speed rail and so Johnson at least recognizes that public spending can be an investment He is half Keynesian, half Thatcherite in his confused, kind of bewildered mind. But at least there's half a Keynesian there who recognises the benefits of investment. And he's virtually alone in that cabinet in recognising this. And Sunak is uh, not only an old-fashioned Thatcherite, but has been wholly captured by treasury orthodoxy which is basically public spending is a waste of money it's still stuck in that you know great people like nick mcpherson who was a permanent secretary at the treasury and a very interesting modest uh, figure he's always tweeting skeptically about any public spending announcement and he he then puts the hashtag sound money and but the essence of treasury orthodoxy is sound money is not spending anything and they don't recognise that investment can bring and indeed reap economic dividends and social improvements in people's quality of lives. That um, They don't make that part of the equation, and, and, and Rishi Sunak is absolutely part of that. So Boris Johnson has to go it alone at times and put pressure on Sunak to spend what the IFS have described, the Institute for Fiscal Studies, as unavoidable. Investment, given what's happened over the last 10 years. Unavoidable. That's the view of the Institute for Fiscal Studies, but Rishi Sunak doesn't see it like that. He is part of that culture of spending being a waste. So Johnson relies on his dominance of this subservient, docile government, so dangerous for him in so many ways and for the country. But on this, I'm pleased he has prevailed to some extent but only to some extent here's the massive problem with what was announced uh, in terms of railways uh, for the north of England the whole principle behind high-speed rail was not some sort of vanity project it began with Andrew Adonis a a devotee of trains and someone who wholly recognizes the benefits they bring Uh, but it was this the trains were becoming packed to the point where, you you know people talk about the NHS at breaking point. Honestly, the trains, certainly from Euston going north, were at breaking point. So something had to be done about capacity. And Adonis, who instigated this, uh, recognised that instead of opting for further disruptive upgrades of existing lines, uh, which cause chaos, and often last years beyond the original deadlines, you build a new line to address the demand. And in that uh, new line, what does Britain do? Does it aim for its normal kind of mediocrity when it comes to services, or does it aim for high-speed rail, as in France, as in Spain, etc.? And it seemed to him and indeed me uh, that uh, you go aim if you're going to do this aim for the best Uh, britain hardly ever does that and seems to kind of accept that it is condemned to mediocre public services even though in spite of all the chaos of the last 10 years and uh, economic recklessness um, it's still one of the richest countries in the world but it doesn't have uh public services to match including the trains so that premise got hs2 going i know all the problems with it and the ridiculous cost infrastructure in in britain again we have real problems with because we don't do enough of it and we don't have enough experts in it Uh, but for all those problems it was going on that basis there was a capacity issue and it was going to be addressed with a new line and therefore, why not go for the best trains? That whole premise is challenged by what Sunak imposed on Johnson uh, last week. Uh, Instead, they're going to upgrade existing lines, which is better than not doing anything, of course, which is what would have happened in the 80s and 90s, actually. Um, But that will cause chaos uh, and disrupt services. And it will not address the capacity issue in as clear a way as extending the HS2 line. And so, actually, Johnson, who said yes to HS2, under huge pressure from Dominic Cummings and others to scrap the whole thing, said yes. So he bought the arguments, but has now undermined the arguments by... Uh, what's happened uh, with the announcement last week. And I say it's a, it was a Treasury-led constraint. Um, it will uh, have consequences. That word, the word of the podcast. Um, I don't know about the electoral consequences. I think there's a question about that to come shortly. Um, but in uh, de- defining the west of England against the east of England, in leaving some towns better connected, others not, there will be consequences to save a few billion pounds, um, because the Treasury and Rishi Sunak doesn't like spending money. For those of you about to buy the book of the Prime Ministers, we never had. Um, for Christmas present Uh, tell those who you give it to 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 listen to the podcast I did in August about whether Rishi Sunak like many chancellors before him might become a prime minister we never had I think some of the worst decisions of this uh, government the libertarian instincts of this time a year ago when uh, Sunak told Johnson to keep everything open Uh, as the pandemic raged, um, eat out to help out. And a brutally swift return to attempts at economic orthodoxy when it comes to infrastructure projects can be laid at his door. And I wonder whether Tory party members might start doing that and and columnists who hail him uh, in the months and years to come. Anyway, that's my quick thought on that one. Uh, Moving on to, I don't know, did any of you read Paul Dacre's letter to the Times explaining why he was pulling out of the Ofcom job? Remember, the context of this was he didn't get it, Uh, when the formal procedure went through uh, its various phases last time so they you know in true Johnson style they changed the rules so he could apply again Um, but he's pulled out and I think he's pulled out because well who knows why he's fully pulled out but um, the reason it would seem to me is the context that uh, if he were to get it now, all hell would break loose, because it's there are echoes with the Patterson affair. You change the rules to get the outcome you want. And um, Dacre, who is a sharp journalist, could probably see uh, the way this was going to go when he was, if he were to be appointed. But anyway, in his letter to the Times, he complains about... You know the kind of left of center dominance of government and power um and that uh it's the civil servants who rule not the elected uh tory government and so on it was uh, a cry of impotence from someone who has exerted more power and authority than most cabinet ministers would dare to dream of and it is an interesting insight into the mindset of those who are uh, kind of destined for power, in England anyway, uh, e.g. conservative editors who, um, I mean, Paul Dacre, virtually ran the last Labour government on one level. Uh, Gordon Brown ached for his approval um, and was devastated when he didn't get it as Prime Minister. Uh, And the Mail had a big influence, certainly in the early days of the New Labour era, until the Mail turned to such a point where even Blair and co. gave up on it, but Gordon Brown never did. And uh, he continued to exert extraordinary influence. The BBC is terrified of the Daily Mail. So he had real power, and he was reflecting in a context of a government which exerts pretty unconstrained power at the moment with that huge majority of 80 um it's been allowed to get away with a wholly ill thought through brexit which is going to have seismic consequences Um, and yet they feel besieged and i'm sure johnson probably feels the same (laughs) What what do i got to explain who paid for my holiday what is this I've got a majority Um, and by the way this is a common feeling within governments I mean outside there's a perception of omnipotence which is wrong Uh, governments are quite constrained I remember being at a dinner gathering at the height of new labor and there were several big new labor names at this gathering i remember ed Miliband being one of them this is when he was in the cabinet or an advisor to gordon brown not when he was leader and several others and they were all moaning the fact that the political culture was so against them uh mainly and they were right about this that the power of the media and the hold the media had over this government and so on and uh, i kind of went home thinking my god they got a majority of about 150, and the Tories were nowhere at the time, and yet they felt besieged, and of course I, I, you know, there was an argument that the sin of New Labour was arrogance. I always argued it was the opposite, it was insecurity, a feeling that they were disturbing the natural order of things, which is that the Conservatives rule at Westminster. And yet here we have conservatives like Dacre and probably Johnson himself thinking the same. Oh, yeah, it's all run by lefties, uh, BBC, uh, universities. Um, and they are so powerful. Uh, you know, look at the BBC. Uh, a, a Tory donor uh, is now their chairman, chairman, I think they call him. Uh, uh, and the director general was a conservative candidate... Uh, for a local council uh, in the past. Um, so two people who were, at various stages of their lives, committed Tories running the BBC. And that's nowhere near enough. You know, he, Johnson puts Nadine Doris in to... Uh, Really, as an act of provocation against the BBC, that's why she's there um, as the culture secretary. And he wanted Dacre in an Ofcom. They they ne- they never stop. They see enemies everywhere, and yet they could, if they chose, wield such power. Um, and Johnson has done so in as saying negotiated chaotic Brexit, but struggles with the rest of his agenda levelling up, etc. Not because of some mighty left-wing force stopping him, but more because he doesn't quite know what it means and Rishi Sunak next door won't give him the money. That's more what it's about than this. But there you have a kind of, from one of the most powerful figures of recent decades, a despairing cry of impotence. Um, it's, It's really interesting. Which brings me briefly to Andrew Marr, And uh, he is a brilliant broadcaster, writer, journalist. And his reason for going, I don't know if you read the statement he put out on Twitter or wherever, uh, saying that he wanted to get his voice back. And um, I found that very interesting because there should be scope within a self-confident BBC with a clear sense of purpose for voice. Obviously not for partisan presenters. You can't, you can't do that like LBC, where he's gone, can do, I think. Although they should discuss whether that is a possibility. Because in a way, if you listen to LBC, more light is shone on stories and themes than these tedious, formulaic kind of uh, uh, BBC daily current affairs programs um, as long as you know where they come from so most of the LBC presenters I think are Tory I mean they need to look again at the balance but we know where they come from and that can shed light so when one of the Tory presenters turns on Johnson that's interesting Um, and yet you can't so they need to look at that at the BBC they need to look as I've said many times giving more space to the presenters to interview at depth and, and, and not being in such fear of the Daily Mail and the Telegraph. And, and and you know, the bravest thing a producer can say to a present oh, have you seen that in the mail? Ask X about that. You know, uh, ask Starmer whether he thinks Corbyn would be a better prime minister. That came from a column, from a right-wing columnist. Um, and... You can understand anyone uh, within the BBC with a real interest in politics at a deep level becoming frustrated, and to his great credit, he has uh, left that beautiful high-profile job um, to have that greater scope, to, to, to probe more deeply. And the real danger is if you're not allowed to probe more deeply, Um, politics becomes a game Uh, you know when you're it's very interesting when I have conversations with the BBC people even privately uh, the most daring they go is say oh I think the Tories will win next time or something like that which is not really a great insight and it's not partisan it's an observation of the game because that is allowed within the rules of impartiality so what the BBC needs now and they had it in the uh, was it the uh, late '80s, early '90s with uh, John Burt, is a sense of what you can do within the constraints of impartiality in a in in a way that it allows exploration of politics at depth. They're up against podcasts now. They're up against um, the hunger of people with some integrity in that organisation who want to go deeper. And yet you hear just assertions of such banal uh, proclamations, you know, like I think the chairman of the BBC said, we're launching an impartiality revolution. What the hell does that empty adolescent phrase mean? Um, But it needs brave people there who are not terrified of being a front-page story on the mail, disturbing their rather nice lives, um, uh, but with a clear sense of purpose. And, of course, sticking to those impartial rules. Um, But I suspect there was a uh, culture that was possible within those constraints that would have kept the likes of Andrew Marr, who who genuinely interested in politics, doesn't just see it as a game, fulfilled. Uh, But at the moment, it's, it's so weakly led at all levels it's 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 it it, well I can understand why he made what is a bold move okay that's it from me um as in well it's not over don't don't switch off I'm turning to you now uh, for some of your uh questions all urgently relevant yeah we're still exploring that phrase a couple of weeks ago there was a brilliant question about uh when Keir Starmer was accused of playing politics uh, someone pointed out um, that that's, you know, that's what politicians have to do. <laughs> it is part of the remit, and yet it was seen as somehow derogatory. Um, and uh, so Liam Firth from York says, um, he wonders about whether I was too, and my emailer was too dismissive of those uh, challenging politicians for playing politics. And he says that the most successful Labour leaders including Blair and Wilson, were able to forward a political agenda without appearing to be too political. That's, yeah, that's part of the art, absolutely. They were playing politics, uh, Liam, um, but um, they gave the impression that they weren't. Um, do you think, this is uh, Liam Firth from York, do you think Starmer can take advantage of the recent Sleaze scandal to give him space to appear pragmatically interested in governing without appearing to be playing politics? Well, as I've discussed here before, Keir Starmer is still learning the art of politics and leadership. And the fact that he was accused of being of playing politics shows that he hasn't quite yet got the knack Um, of playing politics without appearing to do so. Um, But you're right, both Wilson and Blair at their peak were absolutely playing politics, but gave the impression that they weren't. And um, over to Keir Starmer to to learn that art and several other arts of uh, leadership in the coming months. Okay, uh, Kevin, oh thank you, or oh, Liam says, uh, th- thanks for the podcast, it's my essential listen. Thank you so much, uh, uh, walking around York, Liam, as you listen. Lovely city to to listen to as you're uh, going around York. Kevin Irving uh, writes, I know we've danced around this subject since the 1980s. Ah, but surely it's now time for the Labour Party to endorse the introduction of PR and ideally, the single transferable vote to boot. Of course, once Labour, if Labour sneaks in uh, and in, in its once in a generation uh, election victory, it will soon forget the decades out of power and once again back first past the post. That's what happened in 97, of course. Um, yeah, well. Uh, this is a running theme and as I said you and others Kevin are making me reflect I think I might have to do an electoral reform special Um, I know that's almost a contradiction in terms um, and it might result in a dramatic decline in um, subscribers Uh, but it, it comes up all the time I'm still not there yet I think there's another issue that needs to be addressed which you imply in your question which is the dysfunctional Labour Party the Labour Party has been dysfunctional for decades and electoral reform ...is a kind of therapy for those who want an alternative to the Conservatives... ...that Labour constantly fails to deliver. So, what route do you take? Electoral reform. So you accept that the anti-Tory vote is going to be fractured in all kinds of ways... ...and you don't have a Labour Party capable of binding that vote in a compelling way... ...for all kinds of reasons. It's structure... Uh, the people who get to the top, and so on. So you change the whole voting system. Or you try and get a functional alternative. Um, Anyway, that's for the special. Um, So, uh, oh, yeah, and Kevin says, uh, I recently read a signed hardback copy of your book, The Prime Ministers We Never Had, on a National Express coach journey from Newcastle to Bristol and back again. It made the many hours fly by. Well, I'm thrilled to hear that. Thank you. Uh, and that's a long way. Bristol to Newcastle and back. Uh, for those buying it for Christmas, you know, we're just talking about a bit of Boxing Day over a glass of good, warming red wine and a fire burning. But Coach Journey, yeah, well, I'm thrilled. Thank you. Uh, Simon By says... Um, Do you think observing uh, the changes in Andrew Marr's style when he moves to the LLBC will give us a useful window into BBC policy, um, editorial policy? The BBC is so fractured and weakly led. uh, There isn't—I mean, there are sort of constraints uh, driven by fear, really. Uh, So editors are scared of. Uh, the director general with and he's scared of number 10 and he's scared of the chairman who's scared of, you know, fear, fear, fear but yeah, it it will be a different he will get his voice back and that will be interesting uh, to reflect on I think, uh, what that tells us about various forms of broadcasting in this new era whereas to say, I, I kind of listen to podcasts now much more than the formulaic um, contrivances of, um, I'm afraid, quite a lot of the output on the BBC at the moment. Um, that's no disrespect to presenters and all the rest of it, but, um, yeah, just give it stuff room to breathe, experiment a bit with th- this formulaic stuff and, and have deep discussions about... How they explore themes while being impartial, not just assert an impartial partiality revolution, for God's sake. Um, it, it kind of just needs they've got so many of these bloody managers mouthing banalities to each other at never ending meetings, and it just needs clarity of thought and depth of thought, okay. Um uh, Mark Harper, Dr. Mark Harper says, uh, your podcast usually turns up just in time for me to listen to it driving home from my job as an anaesthetist in uh, Christian Sand, Norway, where I've been working for the last year. Oh, great. I, I hope it doesn't act like the anaesthetist's uh, needle or whatever you do when you put people... Uh, to sleep mark i hope it i hope it's you know it it revives you after a hard day's work as an an anaesthetist in norway but that's another what a romantic image that drive and listening to all of us reflecting on this podcast Uh, in reference to the recurring theme of consequences and in particular the blindness to them of our current prime minister yeah That's, for new listeners, that's one of the podcast themes. Boris Johnson has never reflected on consequences as he makes his moves, the consequences of his moves. I thought you might be interested in this snippet from Tim Harford, who produces the other must-listen podcast radio show, More or Less. Yeah, it's brilliant. Uh, From an FT column, he said, (laughs) this is... This is familiar. A certain Boris Johnson once worked as GQ magazine's motoring correspondent. His editor noted that Johnson had cost GQ £5,000 in parking tickets, but he wouldn't have him any other way. And Mark adds, it seems he has always been oblivious to consequences in all aspects of his life, and that there are people willing to pick up the pieces left in his way. Do you remember um, at the start of the leadership contest in the summer of 2019, The Guardian got hold of um, neighbours recording that row with Carrie? in a flat and the neighbours were interviewed and said that um, one of the other things they noted was Johnson's car parked outside this flat just full of parking notices. And he obviously completely, uh, you know, bypassed all the parking restrictions, parked, got these notices, didn't even take them off the car window. Certainly didn't pay the things if they weren't taken off the car window. And that is a quick accessible way of understanding who is presiding over the UK at this um, just historic set of junctions with brexit and the union being called into question the economy taking a different shape um so yeah thank you for that mark enjoy it in in norway if you're if you're still working there uh kathy mears was reflecting on the trains announcement and wondering whether the uh cancellations uh so-called of some of the improvements will have an impact on the red wall um if you looked at the newspapers in the north of England, there was a coordinated scream of outrage, and I am still of the view that newspapers have quite a big role in moulding opinion, even if um, most people don't read them. I don't quite know how they get out uh, into that world, but they do. Uh, so I suspect it will have an incremental impact in what will be, I mean, the default position of many voters is disillusionment you know very quickly they they feel let down under normal circumstances as we know uh, boris johnson transcends that and voters who would normally say oh the bastards you know they've let us oh god you know i voted for them it was all lies, lies lies uh for some reason with you know if it rains oh bloody hell it's raining that bloody government uh, with Boris Johnson, it's the exact opposite. Amidst chaos, they all say oh, he's trying his best. You know, he's 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 with us. You know, and all this kind of stuff. But that won't last forever. And the disillusionment, I think, will be gradual because voters never admit they got it wrong. So they have to have a lot of evidence that a person has not delivered what they judged that person would deliver. And and the railways are part of it. But as I say, it's a nuanced picture because without Boris Johnson there would have been much less investment in the trains um, if it was up to Rishi Sunak or Liz Truss or, or one of those who don't really believe in the state as part of the solution. They see it as part of the problem, the early 80s mindset that um, means that Johnson is on one level closer to the One Nation Toryism of Harold Macmillan and Rab Butler and so on, uh, than the Thatcherites that are still around him and who were kind of brought back to life by David Cameron and George Osborne and their turbocharged Thatcherism, dressed up and sold and willingly bought by much of the media as modernising centrism. It's it's been a weird dance the last decade. Uh, Noah Keat says thank you very much for the political arena shout out oh yeah this is the kind of uh, show that uh, Noah Keaton and, and another correspondent from last week uh, told me that they did um, you've spoken about how Labour and Keir Starmer need to mold a compelling story if they're to have any chance of winning the next election y- yeah it's a compelling story it's it's a it's explaining why they are behaving in the way they do, and making it cohere, Um, and yeah, it of course has to be compelling. Um, I wonder whether one of these themes could be the injustice of negligence. I don't think that is quite a slogan, Noah, that will resonate yet, but anyway, this is what Noah says. This could unite three campaigning groups who have suffered immensely. Excluded, who were individuals unable to access government support during the pandemic, yeah? Fire and rehire workers, who are being forced to accept worse contracts and lower pay. And the National Leaseholders Campaign, who are trying to prevent leaseholders from having to pay the costs of removing cladding. I believe if Labour came up with an effective campaigning message for all three groups, they could unite a large section of the country yeah i think you're right about the the need to address the issues and f- of all those groups and find a way of uniting uh their concerns and and turning them into a set of common concerns and and, and the reasons why starmer and labor would address them um but to be honest i think they have to go even wider than that and uh, and look at uh, what has happened to the UK over these four terms uh, of a Conservative government. This is the fourth term. It's not a new government. It's the fourth term. Um, and extract from the flaws the reasons why they are, with their values and policies, addressed, uh, equipped to address them. And that might be part of it, Noah. Thank you very much. Good luck with the radio show. It sounds brilliant, actually. Good Good high politics um tom purser says i'm a relatively recent subscriber to the podcast thank you for mentioning that tom please do subscribe uh, if you're listening then you get it automatically like the old days when newspapers used to arrive on the doormat um so do keep uh, do press subscribe and then you get it automatically oh yeah and if you could leave a review you know that kind of five star number more people will get to have access to the podcast uh, tom per- person says um oh it's become my favorite politics podcast thank you uh, and he's a first time correspondent yeah i'll try to get as many of the first time questioners in um yeah he says about the playing politics uh accusation it sticks because people can see the strings and don't like it yeah that's very similar to the earlier question that the art is um, you are playing politics if you are a leader, inevitably, Uh, especially leader of the opposition, because you haven't got the power to implement politics. You've just got to use guile and artistry. And on one level, that's playing politics. But you are absolutely right, Tom. If people can see the strings and the pulling of it, they turn away. And so to give an early example we talked about this at the time all of us um because there were lots of emails about it as well when Keir Starmer suddenly appeared with a big Union Jack behind him you know you could see the strings being pulled you know you could see the whole sequence and it then becomes uh, an analysis of the sequence oh he's trying to show he is patriotic by appearing in front of a huge Union Jack he's Trying to show that because in the red wall they think Labour is unpatriotic, and suddenly the analysis is on all the string pulling, and you don't want anyone to see how the trick is done. Um, so I, uh, you, you're right in that sense that it's a valid question because you can see how the trick is being done. Um, James Pozzo writes, "I'm a new convert to the Rock and Roll Politics podcast, oh thank you," uh, and. I've been searching for something which would help me process the often unfathomable twists and turns of post-Brexit politics. Your podcast has done as well, Thank you? Certainly, there are plenty of unfathomable twists and turns around, James. Um, whether we all navigate them uh, successfully, that's a, that's a bigger question. I'm interested to know your thoughts on the following. I'm fascinated when parts of the Tory propaganda machine, uh, most notably the Daily Mail, turns on a Tory leader. But especially this time, since the Owen patterson debacle, um, why do you think this has happened? Um, yeah, it is a significant moment when Tory newspapers turn. As I've, it's another constant theme of mine. They remain powerful, big influence on the BBC. When papers like the Mail turn on a Tory prime minister, it gives the BBC permission, as they see it, to go big. That's what happened. I was there in the mid-90s for, with John Major, early 90s actually. The Tory papers turned on John Major after September 1992 when Britain fell out of the exchange rate mechanism. And actually the BBC went way over the top. Um, I, I think instead of reporting the instabilities within that government and party, they fueled it but it was because the mail and others were splashing every day with anti-major stuff. However, this time, of course, the mail has done it over sleaze. It's always sleaze rather than policy. Um, And Geordie Gregg, the editor, has just been sacked. So, you know, let's see if they now become a doting admirer again, like the Express, you know, Hero, Boris. But if they don't and remain critical uh big if um that will have consequences and not good ones for uh Boris Johnson uh Andy Kemp oh are the consequences of um Boris Johnson's leadership kicking in quicker than any of us thought just a couple of months ago dare we hope that he will be gone by this time next year come to that in a minute but here's the big news Andy Kemp writes as your northeast Derbyshire correspondent constituency of one Lee Rowley dun, 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 dun. for new listeners at my live show at King's Place before Lee Rowley I had never heard of Lee Rowley he he said he might be a potential leader and within days Lee Rowley was given a job in government he's now on question time anyway um uh, I'm interested in how the PM's performance may be viewed in the former red wall seats. Will such constituents even be interested, or will it be the cost of living impacts that hit home over the next few months? Yeah, it's 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 hard to read, isn't it? I mean, I did a the theme of last week's podcast, as some of you may remember, was the shift in opinion polls, with some of them giving Labor a lead. Um, well, since then, some of them have given the Tories a small lead after the torrid week Boris Johnson has endured. So, I suspect many of them, and I find it shocking to be honest. Because if we're given the vote, I think there is a kind of responsibility to engage with what's happening, and I don't. I think many are wholly disengaged. Um, They see someone who got Brexit done. They think Brexit was their cause and he was the one who delivered. And there isn't much more going on at the moment. Um, But yeah, cost of living uh, tends, if it is severe, to have dire consequences for a government, uh, any government. Although it has to be said, Ed Miliband tried cost of living um, as a theme and he didn't win um, so uh, let's let's see how it goes oh yeah and Andy says this I know it's early this is him but season's greetings to you and all rock and roll followers well thank you thank you very much uh, yeah well we well, was still in November uh, but that's great thank you Andy um, Habib Habib Chowdhury in Glasgow, all this talk of levelling up the North consciously omits any serious re-examination of the North asserting its own power and identity over the Westminster system. Uh, How often have you seen the phrase twinned with northern powerhouse infrastructure? Uh, and the promise of buying more things compared to how little it is used in the context of mayoral powers or devolving tax or new regional senates. Yeah, that's that's an interesting point. How, well, levelling up is a huge theme, and one of the themes is how do you devolve power to take back control? that phrase which was used in the distorting context of the Brexit referendum, should apply more to the levelling up agenda. But it is difficult, Habib. I don't know whether you agree, because investment, uh, if you devolve power, you have to devolve to some extent the responsibility for raising money to pay for public services. And therefore you could say, right, we'll give all the power to, say, the mayor of Manchester to raise money for, say, trains. And it would be an astronomical burden, in inverted commas, I don't like the term burden for investment. But it would be a big, big tax demand on those voters. Uh, Whereas if it's organised centrally, uh, you can make an assessment of how much a region needs and provide it through general taxation. So it's complicated. But levelling up for it to work, you're right, needs... uh, an analysis of where power should lie and how that power is made accountable to local voters with a more candid analysis of the money required um, for the level of investment and clearly that's what went wrong last week there was an assessment of the money required and then Rishi Sunak said I'm only I I don't think we should spend that much and that's so there are two huge challenges and they're slightly contradictory the need for central funding and devolved decision making thank you very much god we're we're kind of marching on here let's do a few more steve petrie a couple of podcasts ago you said something that's had me thinking as i unpacked boxes after our move from reading to our yorkshire home in new mill near Homefirth. how beautiful are you out walking every day see you know it sounds great tell us tell us uh you said you found uh, Boris Johnson very difficult to read I do Steve in some ways um and anyway Steve said so I wondered why this was when you are usually a very close observer of political characters yeah and I I, I watch him as closely as I possibly can personally when I try to read Johnson I very quickly get past normal political calculations and end up thinking about his character and what incentivizes him in more fundamental ways. Of course I'm no psychologist and there's always the risk in doing so of finding explanations that fit prejudices. Nonetheless, my sense is that he's someone who is prepared to take risks which others would not when he feels the personal opportunity is great enough. Yeah, he I think he is a risk taker um the I read a guardian column the other day accusing him of um laziness and all kinds of things. I don't th- if you're a risk taker you you're not lazy. Um, and I think he is a big, big risk taker on many things. Um, and as say, and as you say, uh, he seems unconcerned with the wider consequences of the risk uh, taking. But he he's certainly a risk taker with Brexit. He's a risk taker with um, uh, proclaiming a levelling up agenda. He's a risk taker with um, putting up taxes. To his credit, he's put up taxes. Uh, but he says it's to pay for social care when it isn't really. It's gone to the NHS, which is a kind of yeah, as ever, it's nothing is quite what it uh, seems. Um, uh, so uh, yeah, um, he he is, as I say, there are both simple insights into him, but there are every now and again moments of complexity, which I think it makes him an interesting figure, actually. Um, so uh, yeah, interesting kind of quite alarming ways in some respects uh let's quickly how many i'm just looking down at uh oh yeah i'm gonna if you don't mind i'm gonna summarize these uh because we've been going for about uh, 50 uh minutes tony ahmet from solihal my impression in the last few weeks has been that labor particularly Starmer himself and Angela Rayner have become uh, dirty and much more aggressive in their attacks on Labour, uh, on on, uh, Johnson in particular. Uh, Starmer's response to the sleeve saga dragging his MPs through the sewer and labelling him a coward in PMQs. Uh, Yeah, uh, uh, Starmer has noticeably changed from being that uh, cautious, restrained lawyer of his early phase of leadership and seeing that no cut through was being made at all to recently raising the volume and that is fine if it is authentic or appears to be that thing that's another favorite word of mine appears to be authentic favorite term appears to be leadership in opposition it is the art of appearing to be something uh, but yeah, there has been a noticeable change. Uh, Jeff Strange, yeah, Jeff has kind of spent a lot of time in Ireland and North London. What really is this sabre rattling over Article 16 in relation to the Northern Ireland Protocol uh, really about? Um, I detect a shift recently, uh, Jeff, about Article 16. Old Frosty, who isn't a politician and doesn't really understand politics, I think he assumed Johnson was ready to press the trigger, uh, and he, I think, was ready to press the trigger. Uh, Johnson, although a risk taker, is also at moments more cautious, and I think he's tried. He's saying to Frosty, "Let's try and get a diplomatic." solution to this um and i noticed cummings saying triggering article 16 would be a disaster frosty's quite influenced by cummings i think his machismo uh was uh based on cummings machismo when cummings was in number 10 frosty dealt more with cummings than johnson um and he is this sort of naive uh figure thinking he is so clever frosty but he gets he's all over the place um it's impossible to predict but it appears as if there's more of a shift away from it but probably having said that while you're listening to the podcast they'll trigger it um brad dodd wonders uh, oh he says starting to listen to times radio where at least guests are allowed to finish sentences he wonders about what the outlets will be in five years time yeah fascinating question uh brad uh yeah times radio the great thing about having a smaller staff is the, there is no option of, of over producing programs uh, the bbc is is basically producer-led it has tons of producers again fears a big part they're scared that they might miss be accused of missing something so they cram programs if you see um politics live uh, used to be called the daily politics on bbc2 there are far too many items and it's not because there's a fear of being accused of missing something out um whereas times radio probably hasn't got that option you know be one producer and a presenter kind of thing and they let things breathe. Um, I don't know what the yeah the media has been through. is going through so many revolutions. Five years time, it will be who knows. Um, but yeah, more change is coming. I suspect. Uh, Robin Murray. Uh, yeah, we follow each other on Twitter. On reflection, I think you were right to argue it was a mistake for Labour to vote for the Tory Brexit deal. Yeah, it gives them less space to to criticize the consequences uh, are not labor in danger of failing to unite remainers disillusioned Tories and tactical voters like Lib Dems uh, lending their vote um and they said best wishes from the blossom route of West Kent I remember you mentioning the blossom route of West Kent sounds like a great uh walk um yeah I think as I said earlier the issue is do you change the voting system so that the fractured votes of the anti-Tory uh, voters um, are addressed through a changed voting system, or does the Labour Party ever get its act together and uh, elect people with the the the, uh, the guile, the artistry, to bring together? a mountain of different groups who are watching with a degree of horror what's going on in Britain at the moment um and to pose the question we know one answer is that Labour is so bad at doing that basically winning elections um uh yeah Gren Nation uh oh three doses of me the other day I'll go and lie down in a darkened room um uh yeah oh oh he he asked uh I mentioned on another podcast that I was reading the Odyssey, uh yeah I have not only been reading it I've been kind of studying it in a group and we've had a fantastic time doing it, small group we've been doing it on Zoom but we're going to meet up in real life and there's high excitement, um I've uh I'm reading the most recent translation I think by Emily Wilson, the daughter of. A.N. Wilson, um, but I've got right next to me now, I think the more famous one, Robert Fagel's translation. Anyway, it's great. It's like reading a thriller, um, but multi-layered. I just can't believe how it was done so long ago. It's it, the, the the themes are so topical. Uh, Syed Hussein, you often talk about the art of opposition. God, do I? Because I've been mentioning endlessly on this podcast. And the need for a teaching style. Yep like Thatcher's message about her father and his shop, yep. Uh, I wondered whether you could touch on the art of cut-through and landing blows on governments when you're in opposition. What was it like under Blair in the lead up to 97? Um, What was Blair's media operation like, and what kind of arguments did he frame? Well, yeah, uh, you know, Blair was in many ways uh, way too cautious as a leader, but part of his artistry was to claim boldness when he was being ultra cautious never really wanted to challenge middle england orthodoxies uh, as espoused by the newspapers they read but the operation was brilliant in the build up to 97 they worked out it has to be symphonic when you're in opposition in other words you have to have a message which is pegged to your policies and the policies are made sense of by your explaining your values and then you work around the clock deciding when you put out the messages relating to your policies, how you expose the weaknesses of a government and they did it and it was symphonic and that's what you need and if you don't get the symphony right you'll lose. Um, Thank you for that Syed. Peter Summer finally he says, "I was rather too kind about the shadow home secretary, the near invisible Nick Thomas-Simmons." I said, "Well, he, at least he's writing books. He's written a book. He's writing a book at the moment, I think, on Harold Wilson." Uh, voters consider not only a leader in a party but the plausibility of a team, and the home, shadow home secretary is one of the major roles. Uh, Pretty Patel should be an easy target. Uh, yeah, she should really. Um. so yeah no I think you're right uh, I think he should have a higher uh, profile and utterly expose. I mean what's the latest thing you know uh, asylum seekers are going to be processed in Albania and Albania have turned around and said no they're not this has always been a fantasy thing you know do you remember when Michael Howard was Tory leader he was going to put them all on an island And Blair, who was very nervy about challenging anything the Tories say on asylum seekers, said, look, where is this island? You know, where is it? Of course, he couldn't name it. Um, So, yeah, he should be all over the place. Um, And you're right that he isn't. Uh, Oh, and Peter says, you seem to know where your correspondents listen. In my case, on the hill, immediately to the south of Crouch End where one can occasionally see a shadow justice secretary and rarely a, a rock and roll podcaster urgently cycling somewhere yeah well i'm kind of well yeah i'll wave to me as i'm urgently cycling and yeah you're, uh, david lammy lives uh, very near me uh, as well yeah we should have our own uh, kind of yeah i think there are one or two others who uh out and about in that area but thank you very much for uh putting the other point of view on the um, shadow cabinet front well that's it we've been going for nearly an hour uh well yeah will be an hour uh thank you as ever brilliant questions sorry if i didn't get to yours um because i'm getting loads and trying to kind of vary them and so on, i read them all and they're all fantastic and they they actually fuel the podcast in different ways they give me thoughts and i mention them you respond to them and and on the our never ending dialogue goes it's like you know the bob dylan never ending tour we've got a never ending uh dialogue and so, yeah, that's it. As I say, please join me if you can live at um, King's Place for the Christmas Special on December the 9th or at the Rope Tackle Arts Centre on December the 8th, Christmas Special there uh, in Shoreham. Tickets available on either website and streaming tickets for those of you living on the moon or elsewhere uh, for the King's Place one live and then available, I think, for a week. And yeah, my my festive proposition. If you want to buy the book and have a signed kind of message from me uh email me and i will send you up a signed label with the message on which you can put in the book for those of you who can't get to the festivals etc um and uh, yeah the email address Steve rick 14 at icloud.com keep the questions coming the points coming and we will one of these dates make sense of it all thanks so much have a great week Bye.